Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is For Reading Out Loud. Good to have you with me this evening. Two stories tonight. The first is by Kate Chopin, who lived from 1851 to 1904. She was a widely read American novelist and short story writer known in her day as an interpreter of New Orleans culture. But she was a lot more than a regional author. There was a revival of interest in Chopin beginning in the 1960s because her concerns about the freedom of women foreshadowed later literary themes and her writing influenced so many writers of a new generation. Our first story tonight is Kate Chopin's The Story of an Hour. This one goes out with thanks to Joanne. Knowing that Mrs. Mallard was afflicted with heart trouble, great care was taken to break to her as gently as possible the news of her husband's death. It was her sister Josephine who told her, in broken sentences, veiled hints that revealed in half-concealing. Her husband's friend Richards was there, too, near her. It was he who had been in the newspaper office when intelligence of the railroad disaster was received, with Brentley Mallard's name leading the list of killed. He had only taken the time to assure himself of its truth by a second telegram, and had hastened to forestall any less careful, less tender friend in bearing the sad message. She did not hear the story as many women have heard the same, with a paralyzed inability to accept its significance. She wept at once with sudden, wild abandonment in her sister's arms. When the storm of grief had spent itself, she went away to her room alone. She would have no one follow her. There stood, facing the open window, a comfortable, roomy armchair. Into this she sank, pressed down by a physical exhaustion that haunted her body and seemed to reach into her soul. She could see in the open square before her house the tops of trees that were all a-quiver with the new spring life. The delicious breath of rain was in the air. In the street below a peddler was crying his wares. The notes of a distant song which someone was singing reached her faintly, and countless sparrows were twittering in the eaves. There were patches of blue sky showing here and there through the clouds that met and piled one above the other in the west facing her window. She sat with her head thrown back upon the cushion of the chair, quite motionless, except when a sob came up into her throat and shook her, as a child who has cried itself to sleep sometimes sobs in its dreams. She was young, with a fair, calm face, whose lines bespoke repression and even a certain strength. But now there was a dull stare in her eyes, whose gaze was fixed away off yonder on one of those patches of blue sky. It was not a glance of reflection, but rather indicated a suspension of intelligent thought. There was something coming to her, and she was waiting for it, fearfully. What was it? She did not know. It was too subtle and elusive to name. But she felt it, creeping out of the sky, reaching toward her through the sounds, the scents, the color that filled the air. Now her bosom rose and fell tumultuously. She was beginning to recognize this thing that was approaching to possess her, and she was striving to beat it back with her will, as powerless as her two white slender hands would have been. When she abandoned herself, a little whispered word escaped her slightly parted lips. She said it over and over under her breath. 
free, free, free. The vacant stare and the look of terror that followed it went from her eyes. They stayed keen and bright. Her pulses beat fast, and the coursing blood warmed and relaxed every inch of her body. She did not stop to ask if it were or were not a monstrous joy that held her. A clear and exalted perception enabled her to dismiss the suggestion as trivial. She knew that she would weep again when she saw the kind, tender hands folded in death, the face that had never looked save with love upon her, fixed and gray and dead. But she saw beyond that bitter moment a long procession of years to come that would belong to her absolutely, and she opened and spread her arms out to them in welcome. There would be no one to live for during those coming years. She would live for herself. There would be no powerful will bending hers in that blind persistence with which men and women believe they have a right to impose a private will upon a fellow creature. A kind intention or a cruel intention made the act seem no less a crime as she looked upon it in that brief moment of illumination. And yet she had loved him. Sometimes. Often she had not. What did it matter? What could love, the unsolved mystery, count for in the face of this possession of self-assertion which she suddenly recognized as the strongest impulse of her being. Free, body and soul free, she kept whispering. Josephine was kneeling before the closed door with her lips to the keyhole, imploring for admission. Louise, open the door. I beg, open the door. You will make yourself ill. What are you doing, Louise? For heaven's sake, open the door. Go away. I'm not making myself ill. No. She was drinking in a very elixir of life through that open window. Her fancy was running riot along those days ahead of her, spring days and summer days, and all sorts of days that would be her own. She breathed a quick prayer that life might be long. It was only yesterday she had thought with a shudder that life might be long. She arose at length and opened the door to her sister's importunities. There was a feverish triumph in her eyes, and she carried herself unwittingly like a goddess of victory. She clasped her sister's waist, and together they descended the stairs. Richards stood waiting for them at the bottom. Someone was opening the front door with a latch-key. It was Brentley Mallard who entered, a little travel-stained, composedly carrying his gripsack and umbrella. He had been far from the scene of the accident and did not even know there had been one. He was amazed at Josephine's piercing cry, at Richard's quick motion to screen him from the view of his wife. When the doctors came, they said she had died of heart disease, of the joy that kills. Our second story this evening is by Jesse Redmond Fawcett, born in Camden County, New Jersey, in 1882. She graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Cornell University, pursued further study at the University of Pennsylvania and the Sorbonne in Paris, 
and devoted much of her life to teaching French and Latin. Her fame, however, derives largely from her work beginning in 1919 with The Crisis, the periodical published by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. As its literary editor from 1919 to 1926, Fawcett discovered and helped promote many of the major writers of the Harlem Renaissance. She herself was a prolific writer of poems, novels, and short stories. This one is called Mary Elizabeth, and it was first published in The Crisis in 1919. Mary Elizabeth was late that morning. As a direct result, Roger left for work without telling me goodbye, and I spent most of the day fighting the headache which always comes if I cry. For I cannot get a breakfast. I can manage a dinner. One just puts the roast in the oven and takes it out again. And I really excel in getting lunch. There's a good delicatessen near us, and with dainty service and flowers. I get along very nicely. But breakfast? In the first place, it's a meal I neither like nor need, and I never, if I live to a thousand years, shall learn to like coffee. I suppose that is why I cannot make it. Roger, I faltered, when the awful truth burst upon me and I began to realize that Mary Elizabeth wasn't coming. Roger, couldn't you get breakfast downtown this morning? You know, last time you weren't so satisfied with my coffee. Roger was hostile. I think he had just cut himself shaving. Anyway, he was horrid. No, I can't get my breakfast downtown. He actually snapped at me. Really, Sally, I don't believe there's another woman in the world who would send her husband out on a morning like this on an empty stomach. I don't see how you can be so unfeeling. Well, it wasn't a morning like this, for it was just the beginning of November, and I had only proposed his doing what I knew he would have to do eventually. I didn't say anything more, but started on that breakfast. I don't know why I thought I had to have hot cakes. The breakfast really was awful. The cakes were tough and gummy, and got cold one second exactly after I took them off the stove, and the coffee boiled or stewed or scorched or did whatever the particular thing is that coffee shouldn't do. Roger sawed at one cake, took one mouthful of the dreadful brew, and pushed away his cup. "'It seems to me you might learn to make a decent cup of coffee,' he said icily. Then he picked up his hat and flung out of the house. I think it was stupid of me, too, not to learn how to make coffee. But really, I'm no worse than Roger is about lots of things. Take five hundred. Roger knows I love cards, and with the Cheltons right around the corner from us, and as fond of it as I am, we could spend many a pleasant evening. But Roger will not learn.' Only the night before, after I'd gone through a whole hand with him, with hearts as trumps, I dealt the cards around again to imaginary opponents, and we started playing. Clubs were trumps, and spades led. Roger, having no spades, played triumphantly a jack of hearts, and proceeded to take the trick. "'But, Roger,' I protested, "'you threw off.' "'Well,' he said, deeply injured, "'didn't you say hearts were trumps when you were playing before?' and when I tried to explain, he threw down the cards and wanted to know what difference it made. He'd rather play casino anyway. I didn't go out and slam the door. But I couldn't help from crying this particular morning. I not only value Roger's good opinion, but I hate to be considered stupid. Mary Elizabeth came in about eleven o'clock. 
She's a small, wizened woman, very dark, somewhat wrinkled, and a model of self-possession. I wish I could make you see her, or that I could reproduce her accent, not that it is especially colored, Rogers and mine are much more so, but her pronunciation, her way of drawing out her vowels, is so distinctly Mary Elizabethan. I was ashamed of my red eyes and tried to cover up my embarrassment and sternness. "'Mary Elizabeth,' said I, "'you are late,' just as though she didn't know it. "'Yes, Miss Pearson,' she said, composedly, taking off her coat. She didn't remove her hat. She never does until she has been in the house some two or three hours. I can't imagine why. It is a small, black, dusty affair, trimmed with black ribbon, some dingy white roses, and a sheaf of wheat.' I give Mary Elizabeth a dress and hat now and then, but, although I recognize the dress from time to time, I never see any change in the hat. I don't know what she does with my ex-millinery. Yasm, she said again, and looked comprehensively at the untouched breakfast dishes and the awful viands which were still where Roger had left them. Looks as though you had to get breakfast yourself, she observed brightly and went out in the kitchen, and ate all those cakes, and drank that unspeakable coffee. Really she did, and she didn't warm them up either. I watched her miserably, unable to decide whether Roger was too finicky, or Mary Elizabeth a natural-born diplomat. "'Mr. Gales led me an awful chase last night,' she explained. "'When I got home yesterday evening, my cousin what keeps house for me told me Mr. Gales went out in the morning and hadn't come back.' Mr. Gales, let me explain, is Mary Elizabeth's second husband, an octogenarian, and the most original person, I am convinced, in existence. Yes'm, she went on, eating a final cold hot cake, and I went to look for him, and had the whole police station out all night hunting him. Looked like they wasn't never going to find him, but I says, just let me look for long enough and long enough, and I'll find him, I says, and I did, way out on Georgie Avenue, with the hat on old Miss give him. Sent it to him all the way from Chicago. He's had it fifteen years, high silk beaver. I knowed he wasn't going too fur with that hat on. I went up to him, settin' by a fence, all muddy, holding his hat on with both hands. And I says, Look here, man. You come along home with me, and let me put you to bed. And he come just as meek. No, I knew he wasn't going fur with that old Miss hat on. "'Who was old Miss?' Mary Elizabeth, I asked her. "'Lady I used to work for in New York,' she informed me. "'Me and Rosie, the cook, lived with her for years. "'Old Miss was terrible fond of me, "'though her and Rosie used to quarrel all the time, "'just seemed like they couldn't get along. "'Member once Rosie ran after her one Sunday with a knife, "'and I kept them apart. "'Reckon Rosie must have been put right out with old Miss that day. "'By and by her and Rosie moved to Chicago.' and when I married Mr. Gale, she sent him that hat. That old white woman sure did like me. It's so late, reckon I better put off sweeping till tomorrow, ma'am. I acquiesced, following her from room to room. This was partly to get away from my own doleful thoughts. Roger really had hurt my feelings, but just as much to hear her talk. At first I used not to believe all she said, but after I investigated once and found her truthful in one amazing statement, I capitulated. She had been telling me some remarkable tale of her first husband, and I was listening with the stupefied attention to which she always reduces me. Remember, she was speaking of her first husband. And I says to him, I says, Mr. Gale, 
"'Wait a minute, Mary Elizabeth,' I interrupted, meanly delighted to have caught her for once. "'You mean your first husband, don't you?' "'Yes, am she replied. "'And I says to him, Mr. Gale, I said, "'But Mary Elizabeth,' I persisted. "'That's your second husband, isn't it, Mr. Gale?' "'She gave me her long-drawn, "'No, am "'My first husband was Mr. Gale, "'and my second husband is Mr. Gale's. "'He spells his name with a Z, I reckon. "'I ain't never see it writ. "'As I was saying, I says to Mr. Gale, "'And it was true. "'Since then I have never doubted Mary Elizabeth.' She was loquacious that afternoon. She told me about her sister, where's got a home in the country, and where's got eight children. I used to read Lucy Pratt's stories about little Ephraim, or Ezekiel, I forget his name, who always said, where's, instead of whose, but I never believed it really till I heard Mary Elizabeth use it. For some reason or other, she never mentions her sister without mentioning the home, too. My sister where's got a home in the country is her unvarying phrase." "'Mary Elizabeth,' I asked her once, "'does your sister live in the country, "'or does she simply own a house there?' "'Asm,' she told me. "'She is fond of her sister. "'If Mr. Gales was to die,' she told me complacently, "'I'd go to live with her. "'If he should die,' I asked her idly, "'would you marry again?' "'Oh, no,' she was emphatic, "'though I don't know why I shouldn't. "'I'd come by it honest. "'My father was married four times.' That shook me out of my headache. Four times, Mary Elizabeth, and you had all those stepmothers. My mind refused to take it in. Oh, no, um, I always lived with Mama. She was his first wife. I hadn't thought of people in the state in which I had instinctively placed Mary Elizabeth's father and mother as indulging in divorce, but as Roger says, slangily, I wouldn't know. Mary Elizabeth took off her dingy hat, you see, Papa and Mama, the ineffable pathos of hearing the woman of sixty-four with a husband of eighty use the old childish terms. Papa and Mama were slaves, you know, Miss Pearson, and so, of course, they wasn't exactly married. White folks wouldn't let them. But they was just awfully in love with each other. Heard Mama tell about it lots of times, and how Papa was the handsomest man. Reckon she was long about sixteen or seventeen then, so they jumped over a broomstick, and they was just as happy. But not long after I come along, they sold Papa down south, and Mama never see him no more for years and years, thought he was dead. So she married again. And he came back to her, Mary Elizabeth? I was overwhelmed with the woefulness of it. Asm, after twenty-six years, me and my sister, where has got a home in the country, she really my half-sister, see, Miss Pearson, her and Mama and my stepfather and me was all down in Bumpus, Virginia, working for some white folks, and we used to live in a little cabin, had a front stoop on it, and one day an old colored man came by, had a lot of whiskers. I'd saw him lots of times there in Bumpus, looking and peering into every colored woman's face, and just then my sister, she called out, "'Come here, you Mary Elizabeth,' and that old man stopped, and he looked at me, and he looked at me, and he says to me, "'Child, is your name Mary Elizabeth?' You know, Miss Pearson, I thought he was just being fresh, and I ain't paid no attention to him. I ain't said nothing until he spoke to me three or four times, and then I says to him, Go away from here, man. You ain't got no call to be fresh with me. I'm a decent woman. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, an old man like you. Mary Elizabeth stopped and looked hard at the back of her poor wrinkled hands. And he says to me, Daughter, 
He says, just like that. Daughter, he says. Honest, I ain't being fresh with you. Is your name sure enough May Elizabeth? And I told him, yes, sir. Child, he says. Where's your daddy? I ain't got no daddy, I told him, pert-like. They done took him away from me twenty-six years ago. I was but a mite of a baby. Sold him down the river. My mother often talks about it. And, oh, Miss Pearson, you should have seen the glory come into his face. Your mother, he says, kind of out of breath, your mother? May Elizabeth, where is your mother? Back there on the stoop, I told him. Why, did you know my daddy? But he didn't pay no attention to me. Just turned and walked up to the stoop where Mama was setting. She was feeling sort of poorly that day, and you ought to see me stepping along after him. He walked right up to her and gave her one look. Oh, Maggie, he shouted out. Oh, Maggie, ain't you know me? Maggie, ain't you know me? Mama looked at him and riz up out of her cheer. Who are you? She says, kind of trembly, calling me Maggie that way. Who are you? He went up real close to her. Then, Maggie, he says, just like that, kind of sad and tender. Maggie, and held out his arms. She walked right into them. Oh, she says, it's Cassius. It's Cassius. It's my husband come back to me. It's Cassius. They was like two mad people. My sister Minnie and me, we just stood and gawped at them. There they was, holding on to each other like two pitiful children, and he took her hands and kissed them. Maggie, he says, you'll come away with me, won't you? You're going to take me back, Maggie. We'll go away, you and May Elizabeth and me. Won't we, Maggie? Reckon my mother clean forgot about my stepfather. Yes, Cassius, she says, we'll go away. And then she sees Minnie, and it all comes back to her. Oh, Cassius, she says, I can't go with him. I'm married again, and this time for real. This here gal's mine, and three boys, too, another child coming in November. But she went with him, Mary Elizabeth, I pleaded. Surely she went with him after all those years. He really was her husband. I don't know whether Mary Elizabeth meant to be sarcastic or not. Oh, no, Mama couldn't have done that. She was a good woman. Her old master, what done sold my father down the river, brung her up too religious for that. And anyways, Papa was married again, too, had his fourth wife there in bumpers with him. The unspeakable tragedy of it. I went up and went to my room and hunted out my dark blue serge dress, which I had meant to wear again that winter, but I had to give Mary Elizabeth something, so I took the dress down to her. She was delighted with it. I could tell she was, because she used her rare and untranslatable expletive. Haitian, she said. My sister always got a home in the country, got a dress look something like this, but it ain't as good. No, she got hers to wear at a friend's wedding. Gal she was riz up with. That gal married well, too, let me tell you. Her husband's a Sunday school superintender. I told her she needn't wait for Mr. Pearson. I would put dinner on the table. So off she went in the gathering dusk, trudging bravely back to Mr. Gale's and his high silk hat. I watched her from the window till she was out of sight. It had been such a long time since I had thought of slavery. I was born in Pennsylvania, and neither my parents nor grandparents had been slaves. Otherwise I might have had the same tale to tell as Mary Elizabeth, or worse yet, Roger and I might have lived in those black days and loved and lost each other, and futilely, damnably met again like Cassius and Maggie. Whereas it was now, and I had Roger, and Roger had me. 
How I loved him as I sat there in the hazy dark. I thought of his dear bronze perfection, his habit of swearing softly in excitement, his blessed stupidity. Just the same, I didn't meet him at the door as usual, but pretended to be busy. He came rushing to see me with the Saturday evening post, which is more to me than rubies. I thanked him warmly, but aloofly, if you can get that combination. We ate dinner almost in silence for my part, but he praised everything, the cooking, the table, my appearance. After dinner, we went up to the little sitting-room. He hoped I wasn't tired, couldn't he fix the pillows for me. So. I opened the magazine, and the first thing I saw was a picture of a woman gazing in stony despair at the figure of a man disappearing round the bend of a road. It was too much. Suppose that were Roger and I. I'm afraid I sniffled. He was at my side in a moment. "'Dear loveliest, don't cry. It was all my fault. You aren't any worse about coffee than I am about cards. And anyway, I needn't have slammed the door. Forgive me, Sally. I always told you I was hard to get along with. I've had a horrible day. Don't stay cross with me, dearest.' I held him to me, and sobbed outright on his shoulder. "'It isn't you, Roger,' I told him. "'I'm crying about Mary Elizabeth.' I regret to say he let me go then, so great was his dismay. Roger will never be half the diplomat that Mary Elizabeth is. Holy smokes, he groaned. She isn't going to leave us for good, is she? So then I told him about Maggie and Cassius. And, oh, Roger, I ended futilely, to think that they had to separate after all those years when he had come back, old and with whiskers. I didn't mean to be so banal, but I was crying too hard to be coherent. Roger had got up and was walking the floor, but he stopped then aghast. Whiskers, he moaned. My hat! Isn't that just like a woman? He had to clear his throat once or twice before he could go on, and I think he wiped his eyes. Wasn't it the... I really can't say what Roger said here. Wasn't it the darndest hard luck that when he did find her again she should be married? She might have waited... I stared at him, astounded. But Roger, I reminded him. He had married three other times. He didn't wait. Oh, said Roger, unquotable. Married three fiddlesticks. He only did that to try to forget her. Then he came over and knelt beside me again. Darling, I do think it is a sensible thing for a poor woman to learn how to cook. But I don't care as long as you love me and we are together. Dear loveliest, if I had been Cassius— he caught my hands so tight he hurt them. And I had married fifty times and had come back and found you married to someone else. I'd have killed you. Killed you. Well, he wasn't logical, but he was certainly convincing. And thus, and not otherwise, Mary Elizabeth healed the breach. You've been listening to The Story of an Hour by Kate Chopin, and Mary Elizabeth by Jesse Redmond Fawcett. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe. All the best. Mm-hmm.